Uh, today we're going to be in the book of First John uh, again, and I just want to make sure to keep the understanding of what's been going on in front of us so that we can understand uh, this book, and especially this text today, uh, in light of what John is doing. So John writes First John to a book of believers. So, so the understanding is this book is specifically to Christians. It's not an open letter posted on the, the internet in our day for all people. Even though all people can read it, there's a specific destination and a specific audience uh, in mind to those who claim to follow Christ. And the original recipients who John wrote it to found themselves kind of shaken back then. It was a difficult time. Culture was warring against the beliefs that they had given their life over to. Many people in the church, members of the church family that they had lived next to and with, they were leaving the church. Some of the people in the church were reinventing faith in light of what they really wanted Jesus to be. So they're just kind of tweaking everything like, oh, Jesus, I'd like you to be this. So, so we'll, we'll reinvent who you are. So there's just a ton of difficulty happening in the early church. They're reeling with pain. They're, they're reeling with uncertainty. And there had to be massive questions and concerns in their mind because of just this difficult time. Probably honest questions that we maybe don't talk about very much. Questions like, did I make a mistake following Jesus? Uh, Questions like, would it be easier to just walk away? Would Would it be easier to do what everyone else is doing? This is kind of what they're in the middle of when John writes this beautiful book to them, and then we'll understand a little bit more with the pain that they're in, why he opens up in really the the first couple verses, and he says this, I'm writing so that your joy may be complete. They're in difficulty, they're in pain, they're in anxiety, they're in stress, they're wondering, did I make a mistake? He goes, I hear that, I'm not trying to put a burden on you, I'm writing you this so that your joy may be complete and restored. I'm going to, with my experience and with the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the manifold wisdom of God, I'm going to not write to you promising to pull you out of the pain that you're in, but I'm going to give you something profoundly more valuable to help you get you through what you are in. And what does he do in the book of John? He does this by writing to help them with their joy. He does it by writing about three major topics over and over and over again. And these topics are uh, truth, obedience, and love. His point will be, this is how you find joy. These three things. And I don't want us to walk away with that, from that, without actually thinking about that, what that means. Those just aren't three cute areas. He's like, hey, it'd be a decent idea for you to try and get good at these John is setting uh, up things to, to say, hey, the, the, the keys defining what your soul longs for, that, that angst inside of you, the keys defining meaning, fulfillment, and joy, and overall contentment is through living out the truth of God found in the Bible. That's how you get there. It is furthermore through obeying this God, which is submitting to the truth that he said fully in word and deed, meaning you're acting in line with what he has told you, and it is through living out a visible, tangible, and real love to the, the, the people of God, the fellow brothers and sisters. So his, his understanding is live in God's truth under God's commands and with God's heart, which is the love for his people. This is how you find joy. It made me think a little bit. Uh, over the past year or, or so, um, I have started, I, found, I thought it was a good idea to start trying to buy stock. Like, I'm going to do that. I'm at that age. 
so so I, I, I decided to open up a Robinhood account, and, and it's got everything I need there, and I'm going to buy, and I'm going to sell some stock through that. So I, I opened up the account, and after I opened the account, I, I really quickly realized a couple of different key things. First of all, stocks from companies that I thought were good were way too much money for me. It's the first thing I understood. Uh, the second thing that I understood when I started buying and selling stocks is I literally had no idea what I was doing. Right? I'm looking at it, and there's the ups and downs and all these figures like I don't put, sell, limit. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. So I called my dad. I'm like, Dad, I need your help. I don't know how to do this. Uh, and he, he starts helping me a little bit, and he shows me some stock analysts that him and my grandpa use. And, and I start kind of reading up, just trying to figure out what's up, trying to get my feet underneath of me. Uh, and the thing that I learned immediately from the people that they went to uh, is, is there's this universal principle called portfolio diversification that all of them preached over and over and over. Follow me because we'll, we'll get to an understanding of why I'm saying this. And what they would tell you is if you want to make money and, and not lose uh, your backside in investing, you want to own lots of different stocks and lots of spectrums and lots of industries so you're not putting all of your eggs in one, two or three baskets. All of them preached this. Instead of investing in one or two companies and maybe one of them going under and you lose everything and all of your hard-earned money is gone, invest widely. Now again, why am I bringing this up? Because this time-tested kind of portfolio diversification when it comes to investing of funds, it's kind of what we naturally do concerning our joy and our happiness without being told to, without somebody uh, giving us an analysis of what we should do, we make little investments for our happiness and joy all over the place. We spread it super wide, hoping that through that wide area of investment that we'll hit the goal of joy. Are you following me or am I, am I just giving an example it's not landing? That, that means maybe, maybe this, these are all just made up numbers, but maybe if you're doing that and you want to spread widely or widely, you invest 10% or 15% of your happiness into vacations, getaways, right? Some of us like to go to the ocean, some of us like to go to the mountains, but you spend 15% of, of your joys just invested in those getaways. I get to get away, I don't care about anything, and, and I'm just out. And, and maybe 20% of your joy or investment comes through your family dynamic. Maybe the family that you want, the family that you have, or the family that you're born into, 20% of your joy comes from navigating that. And, and maybe 20% of your joy comes from career. And maybe you hate your job, and it's not career. It's just 20% of your joy comes from the money that the job that you work and hate puts into your bank account. And maybe 10% goes into hobbies like golf or CrossFit or whatever you do. Uh, maybe 7% goes into church attendance, maybe 2% into reading the Bible, 0.5% into prayer, 0.1% into mission, 10% for me goes directly into what the scale says about me, and then 5% after comes into the Andy's ice cream that I get according to what the scale said about me, right? Thank you. Um, you get the point. We make, we make micro investments all over as wide as we can hoping that through this wide investment of joy, just maybe it'll pay off, right? So, so we, we invest in things like vocation and finance and education and kids and politics and hobbies and food and drink and sex and anything. We'll invest in anything. If it promises just a, just a moniker, just a smidge of joy, we invest our little hearts out, hoping for a positive return, diversifying the portfolio as widely as we can so that just hopefully everything doesn't come crashing down. Now notice this. 
That's the exact opposite of what John tells you to do. He says, if you actually biblically want to invest in joy, you don't have to invest so wide. It doesn't mean don't do anything else. It's saying, hey, if you want an investment on your joy, invest in these three areas. Truth, obedience, and loving brothers and sisters. That's where it is. That's where true joy comes from. If you want to walk in the light, the radiant light of Christ, follow those things, and the joy that comes from them will overshadow anything and outperform anything that the world has to offer. It's not saying don't go do things in the world. Just be careful of how much you're investing for your joy all over the place. Then stop hedging your bets everywhere out of fear that God may not actually deliver for you. And and when we do that, what are we doing? We're actually believing that God is a liar. Instead of truly following him and truly leaning into what he says, we're hedging our bets all around just, just, just in case he isn't telling us the truth. And John's asking us to believe that he is a good father with the truth and he has our best in mind. And his investments into what he says, truth and obedience and loving each other will never crash. It'll walk you into the kingdom of God, an everlasting kingdom that Here's the noise, that I, the news that I, I hope our hearts come alive to. This kingdom of God and flourishing in it, it's available now. It doesn't mean it'll get you out of hard things, but there's true depth and joy there. I, I, I throw all of my hope in that because the Bible tells us that is true. Now, with that in mind as well, John wants us to, make, wants us to be hyper aware um, that there are things all around us and all the things around you are in competition over your heart. They're trying to win your heart, meaning that there is a cosmic battle over your heart, and it wages itself in in the physical realm around us, and then hear me, it wages itself also in the spiritual realm uh, around us as well, whether we see it or not. Now, a lot of our attention gets placed on the external things that are fighting for your heart and messing with your heart. A lot of our attention gets on the, the things externally that are trying to get your attention and your affection. They're trying to capture you. They're trying to, to form you in some way. They're trying to lead you. But what we need to understand in light of this text, and I'll tell you on the front side, we normally preach kind of exhaustively through a text. We're not doing this. We're, we're just angling in one way uh, of this text. This text wants us to know there's also a battle internally that you have to be aware of. One inside of your own heart, and it happens in the battleground of your heart and your mind, and you have to be knowledgeable that it's going on and understand how to fight in that battle. This battle is one that is particularly devastating if we're unaware of it. Hear me. This is the tension that we'll kind of run into today. It's really hard to learn that we can't always trust ourselves. It's really hard to learn that we can't always trust the information and the feelings inside of us. We can't always trust what our minds tell us or what our, 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 our heart says that it wants. We cannot always live out of the well of our own emotions or our own thoughts. At times, we have to actually fight against, war against, and battle against what our minds tell us. This is what John is leading us into this week. He wants us to learn how to fight your own heart and how to understand when, when the time is to battle against it and, and when the time is to accept it. How, how do we have wisdom about navigating what's going on inside of us? And then further, because he's not going to leave his main point, how does truth, obedience, and love for each other kind of pour back into handling kind of the inner battle and the inner dialogue going on inside of us? We'll read First John uh, 3, verse 19 through 4, 6. Again, 
we normally take a text a whole lot more exhaustively than this. That's just not the angle here. Uh, so, so I understand that ahead of time. I want you to know there's a lot of meat we're going to leave on the bone here. It doesn't mean there's not good stuff or not valuable stuff. We're just going in one very specific direction in this text. It says this, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Verse 20, you'll catch why we're going in the way we're going. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commands and do what, he, and what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And remember, in, in this book, we've already hit this idea once. This isn't the first time. Which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That, that, that's a good verse. They are, uh, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, most all of our attention is going to be directed at that verse 20, where John says, Hey, we need, to, we need to be talked to and understand what to do when our heart condemns us. There's always going to be an inner dialogue in our, our head, and it's always pointed at us. And John is speaking about how do, you, how do you deal healthily with that dialogue in your own mind and your own heart because there's an extremely healthy and an extremely unhealthy way to navigate, navigate that in your life. This issue of, of the internal self and how we trust and, and how we fight against it is the issue that's the heart at what our, our, our culture is warring at in this current moment. This is where moral relativity comes from. The idea of right and wrong uh, have now become kind of individualized based upon what a person thinks or feels internally inside of them. And what they do is this is an over-acceptance, an over-validation of the inner self, placing the inner self and what it feels and what it says to you up above as the standard for how you should live. It comes from a life that refuses to fight against what it feels, but it just fully accepts the inner self at every corner with every word. It just hangs on it and it fully accepts it. It lets the mind and the thoughts and the emotions just kind of walk through your life and govern you uncontested. Now, this relationship with the inner self right now has become championed as the way to joy. Remember, John says joy comes through truth, obedience, and love. Our world, their gospel says this, no, 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 your joy comes from your inner self. The belief is that joy comes from listening to what you feel fully as your guide. And there's even a whole line of reasoning with that. Now, bravery is to follow your voice inside without question. That's brave. 
That's boldness. Redemption is giving yourself to every emotion that you feel. And freedom is not being confined to anything or anyone except your emotion. And then on the flip side, hatred is not fully championing that way of life or living in it yourself. This is a system that lives as if we dictate all truth and govern all truth by whatever we think, feel, or want. And it preaches this message that that it's devastating when you walk it out. It, it preaches this message, following yourself will fix everything that's wrong in your heart. It's just not working. The gospel is live your own truth no matter what comes your way. Now, all of this points to an unhealthy relationship with an inner dialogue, uncontested reign. Your emotions are king. You, you may ask, okay, so what's so bad about following your heart? What's so bad about giving yourself over to your inner self? Well, there's a number of things we could extrapolate for a a while, but the one that we want to hang on is is really with what this text is talking about to make sure we don't get off from the truth. Uh, But if you let your inner self be your guide, if it becomes the reason of authority over you, then what do you do when that that voice turns on you? What do you do when it points itself and its accusations and its condemnations back at you? What do you do if it runs uncontested and it's always right? What do you do about the voice of negativity inside of your head? I don't have a guess on what actual stats are, so they they would be just completely made up, but a large number of us have an inner voice that beats us up relentlessly over and over and over. We have a voice that, that we'll call an, an inner critic, and it's always speaking. It's always talking. It's always looking. It's always whispering. It's, it's always concerning itself with your shortcomings and your faults. It's, it's just always looking in at your, your, your deficiencies. And that inner self, if left unchecked, will destroy your joy. Why? Because it'll speak into your heart lies so profuse that it'll crush your spirit. And these lies will begin to, they'll begin to kind of form your identity about all the negative things that you feel about yourself. Now this presents the tension though. The, the problem that we have to kind of find help with is one group wants to fully submit to their inner voice and their emotions. It's right. It governs all things. Follow it unashamed. That is the way and the only way to truth and happiness. While another group, uh, they want to do the complete opposite. They want to shut the valve of emotion and inner dialogue completely off and not listen to it at all. Suppressing the heart, suppressing the emotion, suppressing the feelings altogether. And, and what John is kind of doing here is going, hey, there's a third way. There's a third way where you don't accept all and you don't reject all, but we know what to accept and we begin to look for what to reject. And that'll create a healthy inner dialogue. Are you still with me? It's important to know how to navigate this because Guys, we're not trying to posture as if we're better, but we see moments in our own heart and we see friends and people all around us that this unhealthy relationship with the inner dialogue is crushing them. And we've got to be wise about it. This all starts with and is founded on knowing the source of your inner critic. You cannot stop the inner voice and the inner dialogue and the inner stuff going on in your head. It won't stop. But you can identify the source of what's speaking in the moment. There's three sources of the inner critic that I think we can pull from this text, right? right I maybe do it once a year, three-point sermon. The, 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 the first voice of the inner critic is going to be the Holy Spirit. It's in the text. The, the second voice is yourself. 
And the third voice is, is what John calls uh, the world. We have to identify who is speaking in that inner voice and then react accordingly based upon the one speaking in the present time. Don't, don't accept all, don't reject all, identify and act accordingly. The first voice of the inner critic, again, comes from the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Right, right, right. Spoiler alert, this is the good one. You want to navigate this one well. We call this, when, when the Holy Spirit's inner critic speaks to us, we call this conviction. Conviction. And sometimes maybe we'll talk about it in like the Jiminy Cricket conscience and that little dialogue like, hey, should you have done that? Yeah, yeah. That biblically that is the Spirit of God. John 16, verse 8 says very clearly, the Holy Spirit has come specifically to convict the world of sin. By no means is the Holy Spirit's only job, but it is one of his main job. This happens in the life of every single healthy believer. All of us, if we are in Christ, the Spirit will speak and guide and convict. And this is really good news. Where we're pulling that from the text to make sure that I just didn't go uh, off and, and do my own thing. In verse 23 through 24, it talks about the commands of God. And that you can boil those commands down to believing in the name of Jesus and then loving your fellow brother and sister. Again, this believing in Jesus' name is not just cognitive. It's, it's a belief that leads to action where you're actually following him. And then verse 24 says that we know we belong to God because we obey the commands. And notice there isn't 8 million commands. There's two. And it says we know we belong to God because we're obeying those commands through the obedience that we have. Then it further says we know that we have been given to the Holy Spirit. What is it telling us? The Holy Spirit is required to obey. You will not obey on your own. To have the Holy Spirit walking with you is to walk in obedience. You cannot follow, you cannot obey on your own. The Holy Spirit comes, convicts you of your sin, and then helps you walk in the way that God has told you to, which is believing in Jesus and loving each other. Conversely, what does the Holy Spirit do? It shows you when you're not. It helps you obey the commands and then convicts you when you're not. This means sometimes our inner critic will point out areas of conviction, areas where we have failed to obey God, and then what the Spirit is doing is calling us back into obedience. It's not casting us out of the house. It is not throwing away our salvation. It's leading us back into the life that comes through Christ. This is a healthy aspect of our inner critic. And this voice, when you hear it, you should submit to it. Don't fight it, don't shut it off, lean into it, pray through it, and submit to it, even when it feels like a bummer, because it's hard to realize, oh, I did that wrong. But the Spirit isn't coming to rob you, again, it's so that your joy may be complete. This conviction is literally a gift of the Holy Spirit meant to help you become more like Christ and walk more fully with Him. Guys, conviction is good normal things that the Holy Spirit might convict you of. Being selfish towards your spouse, hey, you're a jerk, you need to stop. Ask for forgiveness. That, that wasn't like Christ. You ignoring your neighbor or kind of acting a fool around your neighbor who needs to see a picture of Jesus and the Spirit's going like, how do they see Jesus through what you're doing right there? That, that's good. When, when you're rude to a person out of pride or anger and the, and the Spirit begins to just turn you and say, you need to stop and repent. 
Right? You, you, maybe it's this, your eyes are, are, are wandering in, in, in lust towards things and the Spirit begins to go, there is no glory and no goodness there. You need to turn your eyes and you need to deny yourself. That picture will take you away from looking at the sun. Don't walk that way. There are a million ways that conviction can come, but hear me, conviction always deals with your action and it points you back to Jesus. Right, this is what it does. Now, now, thinking about this happening regularly, uh, as I'm even processing through the sermon, I go to Best Buy this week. I, I've got a keyboard and a mouse that I kind of hooked to a, a laptop at, at the office or at home, and, and one of them bit the dust. Like 10 years old, it had a good run, had to go get another one. So I walk into Best Buy, find the stuff that I need, and I walk up to the counter to pay. And this guy, there's hardly anybody in the stores in the middle of the day. He, he kind of sees me, and he slowly walks around the counter like it. I don't know that he could have gone any slower. And, and then he turns to me, and I, and I set the stuff on the counter, and he says nothing, and he just, you know, he, he, he scans them. And normally at Best Buy, like, hi, do you, are you a rewards member? What's your phone number? Is that your address? Please check the screen, like all that stuff. It's great to see you. Nothing. Just, just silence. Uh, and, and so, like, he scans the thing, and he just looks at me. And I, I imagine stone-faced, but he had a mask so I couldn't see. So stone-eyed, and he just looks at me, and I put the card in, and I pay, and he just sets the receipt down and pushes the stuff towards me. And, like, my wife knows I don't do well with that. And, and so I just looked at him, and I, I just waited, and he just kind of looked at me. I said, you okay? And he said, why would you ask me that? Like, pretty indignantly. Like, why would you ask? Like, well, like you literally said nothing, and that was like one of the most awkward transactions that I have ever had in my life. Uh, and he just goes, whatever, and he pushes the stuff at me. And here's where things went wrong in my mind. I go, have a nice day, and I walked out. I get to the car, and I'm like opening the door, and I just felt, man, you're praying for revival. You bought a keyboard to write a sermon on, and then you just treated that guy like garbage. Like, you got all indignant, you got all uppity because you felt like you deserved better, and that was all pride. And I just began to, like, kind of think in my, in my drive home about that part of my heart that still just wants to fight, that still just wants to win, and, and the Spirit's just going, hey, man, like, Jesus isn't there with you. Like, that is not what he has done in you. Don't walk that direction. And I, just had to, I just had to wrestle with it. We have to know that this inner dialogue, this inner conviction is healthy, and it should lead us to taking action against our actions and against our hearts. In conviction, what we begin to do is the Holy Spirit starts leading in. Remember, the Spirit's always speaking into our action. The Spirit begins to kind of go, hey, what's up with you doing that? And what we have to do is then we have to re-preach the gospel to ourselves. Is that how Jesus loved you? With patient kindness and in mercy, and we have to re-preach what is true uh, about God to ourselves, really in the hopes of like living in more faith next time, believing in his name fully enough that it doesn't affect our actions in that way next time. Now, now it needs to be said clearly, um, if you are a believer and you feel no conviction, none, if you haven't been kind of told that you were wrong at all by the Spirit, Man, I love you, but that's a warning sign. Something is really, really, really wrong, right? That's beyond the light on the dash in the car. Uh, that's you don't realize it, and your wheels came off on the highway. You're about to be in bad shape. Most likely, what has happened, if this has happened, is the Spirit has spoken to you. If you're a believer, 
and you do not feel the Spirit anymore convicting you of anything, most likely the Spirit has convicted you in the past over and over, and you've gone, yeah, 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 be quiet, enough that your heart is callous to where you just don't hear the voice anymore. Right? You literally don't hear the Spirit push on you anymore. Or, this is the more scary side, the Bible talks all over about more than one form of judgment. There's an earthly judgment, and it looks like God going like this, fine, do your thing. Or the Holy Spirit has just stopped speaking because he knows that you don't care and won't listen. If this is the case, you have, in biblical language, grieved the Spirit. And if that's you today, I mean, I would just urge you, in confession and prayer, don't wait, don't walk away. Would you ask for help? God, I don't even hear you adjusting me anymore. I don't feel you working in my heart anymore. My heart is, is heart, spirit, we speak again. The Bible always speaks of the spirit, not as an it or the force or Yoda, but as a person. Holy Spirit, I'm sorry. When I've acted like I don't need you, that I'm smarter than you, that, 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 that you're a, a drag down on my life, would you soften me? Would you help me see that you are good and that I need you? Please speak again. Ask the Spirit to help guide you in obedience once again so that you can walk in the fullness of what God has for you. On the flip side, we, we want to celebrate too. If the Holy Spirit has been convicting you, I just want you to hear in the depths of your heart, that is a gift and it's a really good one. It's a good gift. Even at times when it hurts, you and I need to understand it is good. And what does it do? It shows that God cares. God disciplines the ones that he loves. A father who goes, run in the street, I really don't care, is not loving. But when you are through conviction of the Spirit, being churned, and God's kind of adjusting your actions, it shows you that God cares much for you. I'd encourage you just really to learn to rejoice in that conviction if it's met with repentance. If that conviction is met with you ignoring it, don't, don't rejoice there. It is evidence that Jesus is still working on you and he's close and he's not done with you if conviction is still coming. Don't let that beat you down. Rejoice in that. Learn to listen to that inner dialogue and then watch as the Spirit just kind of peels the layers of the onion of your heart away and then works in deeper and deeper and deeper ways and see if that isn't good. Rejoice if the Spirit is speaking. The, the second voice of our inner critic is just ourselves. We saw that in verse 20. When our heart condemns us, a, a key to a, a healthy inner critic or an inner dialogue is learning to differentiate between conviction and condemnation. Those are not the same. Conviction, again, is about your action. Conviction says you did that wrong. Your actions there were bad. Condemnation says you did that wrong and you're worthless and bad and no one loves you. Right? Those are different. Conviction concerns itself with your actions, while condemnation flows into the very depth of your identity and it begins to speak about who you are to you. Those are different. Condemnation begins to say really weird things to us, like it's all your fault, you always screw up, you always do that, you always fail there. Man, why can't you pull it together? Right? This deep thing that just hurts, that's condemnation. Uh, the condemnation gets heard in our mind when it says things like, you better hide that part of you from them because they will never love that if they see that. That's condemnation. Condemnation is, why would you share the gospel when your life is still a joke? And, and besides that, you're just too dumb. You, like, you're going to ask a question and you're going to get stumped. 
I feel that at times, and I pastor a church. That's condemnation. Or maybe a deeper sadistic one. Why pray? Do you think God really wants to hear you? With your issues and your weakness and your aptitude, do you really think that you deserve to take his time? That's condemnation. It whispers, nobody cares. Nobody loves you. You don't matter. You never do enough. You never are enough. You're always worthless. These are the inner voices of condemnation speaking over you. Now, this false self as an inner critic, this guided inner voice that kind of comes from a weird spot in our own heart, it's preoccupied normally by justifying itself with one of two things, either your accomplishments, so so what you do and earn or achieve, or your reputation, what other people think of you. It's always speaking to you about that. You haven't achieved enough. They don't think enough of you. See, you're a failure. It's always speaking into those things. So it's motivated by self-concern and self-preservation. It's motivated about increasing what you accomplish, and it's motivated by preserving and molding the way that you appear in front of the world around you. This false self is what makes you wear a mask, not, not that one. Right? It's what makes you walk out into public spaces and wear this facade that tweaks the way that people appear or the way that people see your appearance or what they think of you or how much you have it together. This is all that inner critic that's condemning you, that makes you mold and do things that aren't really you because you want to be accepted. You say, man, I don't ever do that. Do you ever pray around other people before dinner, but you never do it at home? Why are you doing that? Something going on. It's also what makes us answer awkwardly the question of how are you, right? In days that were terrible, Garrett, how are you? Good, great, peachy, wonderful. What's going on there? The inner critic is throwing out this, this perception, I'm awesome, I'm good, life's in control, everything's fine, look how wonderful I am. That, that's molding the way that people perceive you. Or, or maybe it, it's why when somebody asks, hey, how are you? And your gut reaction is to go, busy, hectic, so much going on, look at all the stuff I'm doing, what's that? I'm super important, just know that the world couldn't deal without me. Look at all the stuff that I have going on, that's the inner critic. It's trying to rebuild and, and refocus the world sees you. Why? Because it never feels like it's enough on its own. It just can't be content when somebody says, hey, how are you? Really crummy, man. Really crummy. That's only an inner self that kind of understands what's going on. Now, again, I don't want to build a world of pessimists, but we do want to be a little careful about the facades. If this is happening, John would say, right, if that inner voice is speaking so much that it's molding who we are, always condemning, always changing the way that we need to be seen, what John would say is you're worshiping the wrong name functionally. Remember, to follow God, the commands boil down, follow the name of Jesus. If the inner self is putting you into a position of slave, demanding that you work, demanding that you do more, demanding that you be more, demanding that you always look put together and that everything always go well, it means that you have slowly started believing in your own name. I have to be justified by what I do and who I am or else. That means something has gone awry and we've stopped believing in the name of Jesus over our lives, which probably means that conviction has came in several waves and we kept pushing it away. And, and now we've got to this spot where we have to, to, to kind of validate ourselves, where we're trying to re-earn our justification when we've already been justified through what Jesus has done for us. The inner critic 
should not always, therefore, be accepted or listened to. Sometimes you have to fight as hard as you can to put the inner critic to death because it is not speaking the true name over you. It's not speaking truth to you. I really like uh, an artist, me and Blake were talking about it this week, named NF, and like, if believe it or not, I, I, I listen to a little rap, uh, and he, he's great. Uh, there's a new album that he put out, I guess it's a mixtape, I'm trying to get the lingo right, and he, he put this new thing out, and, and he starts this song, and he, and he says this line, so often I feel desperate, I think my heart's infected, and, and then he goes a little further down the road, and he says this line that it just it hit me, I listened to it just this week while prepping for this sermon, he said, suggestion, know that your feelings might give wrong directions. It just hit me in the moment. It's exactly what's going on here. There are times that, that we have to know, and John is saying, there are times that you have to fight what you feel inside. You cannot accept it. You cannot live in it. You cannot champion it. You cannot validate it. You have to put it to death. Because John says there are moments when, the, when your inside will speak over you, and what you'll have to do is understand that God is greater than you. God is greater than your heart. Did you hear the way it said it in the text? When your heart condemns you, go with God's perspective over you because he's greater than your heart. You and God, which is better? John goes, God is. Go with what he says. That's what fighting looks like. Be careful of unquestioned full surrender to what you think and what you feel because it'll take you into a water that is not good for you. The, the last one, see how, how we're doing on time. Um, the last voice of the inner critic is the world. The world. There will be people and things around you that stir this weird inner worldly critic. John in the text says, this is where we're trying to grab this. Remember, trying to make sure that we're biblically centered here. He says that there's going to be a lot of false prophets in the world. And we begin to think of false prophets in like nice suits and cameras all around. And they're just the people who get the attention. And, and if you're following the way he's talked about Antichrist, that's not the way it actually goes most of the time. Yes, that can be the case, but it's not the only case. He says there's going to be false prophets who do not believe or confess that Jesus has come or that he is from God or that he is the only way to God. This is to say that in the world there will be people who push against the name of Jesus. We, our job is to believe in the name of Jesus. Others in the world will push against the name of Jesus. They are the ones who are walking in the spirit of the Antichrist. Is he saying they are the Antichrist? No, he's saying the spirit of the Antichrist that pushes against the name of Jesus and does not accept it. So there's this subtle thing beyond just these loud, boisterous people who, who say the, the, the most uh, awful things in public. Those aren't the only people who he's talking about here. The spirit of the Antichrist comes in any form that rejects Jesus, his words, and his work. That's that spirit. This rejection can be subtle or it can be overt, but it's rejection all the same. And that type of rejection does something in us if we don't know how to fight against that voice. Uh, let's, let's see what that means. Let's talk about that. The inner voice will begin to speak and lead you. Maybe when you know that your boss can't stand Christians, it'll begin to speak what to do, how to react. Maybe you have a client who thinks and has been very boisterous that, that Christians are morons, 
right? That they just don't get it and they're all wrong and they're all hateful. And when you're in front of that client, that voice just begins to speak and it begins to, to whisper. Or, or maybe you have a childhood friend who knew you even in your wild days and they knew the crazy stuff that you, you have done before and you're always just this weirdness when you're around them of the new you versus the, the old you. Or, or maybe there's a group of people that, that you're just terrified because if they knew that you accepted Jesus and followed Jesus and, and they kind of knew what you really believed, that you're terrified that they wouldn't have you. That inner voice just begins to speak in those situations. And that voice says this, you better hide Jesus from him. Right? Like Superman used to pull off the shirt and have the costume underneath. He was like, you better, you better cover it up. You better cover it up so that they don't reject you, so that you're not enough. You better quickly mute your faith. Take the hard edges off. Don't say anything inappropriate. Don't say anything that the world wouldn't love. Mute your identity. Mute Jesus. Mute the light. Cover the light. Do everything that you can so that you aren't exposed as one who follows the name of Jesus and rejected. And begins to also say things like, they're just going to know that you're fake because they know that you still screw up. They're just going to know that, that, that you don't have it all under control. All of these voices will just kind of force you to begin to, to blend in. Blend in so you don't lose your job. Blend in so you don't lose a sale. Blend in so you don't lose a friend. Blend in so you don't get ostracized from that group that you want to be around. Just act like them. Be like them. Do what they do so they don't cast you out. That inner voice says, quick, don't let them see the real you again. You are called to live in the name of Jesus, and the voice says, hey, don't let them see the name of Jesus on you. Blend in, because if, you reject, if they reject you, it's going to be terrible. And then again, you'll be worthless, and you'll feel invalidated. The Holy Spirit in the inner voice will lead you to conviction. It's good. Yourself at times, not all of your own inner voice, but yourself at times, if you're not careful, will lead you towards condemnation. And the inner voice led by the world will speak to you only to conform you. This voice should be rejected as well. right? Knowing that he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. See, the world doesn't believe in the name of Jesus like we do through the Holy Spirit, so we will at times be pushed into situations where the difference between us and them will become very, very, very clear. Don't make it forcefully more clear just to be a jerk, but don't be so terrified when it becomes evident. You're no longer of the world. There's going to be spirits and things all around pushing intention, trying to vie your heart and pull you in different directions. Understand you will not always fit in because... The Bible says you're an alien here. There's always going to be this thing that goes, I just don't fit out there. And that's why Maranatha is good. Jesus says, someday I'll come fix this and you won't feel that anymore. In this text, we get just a really practical view of how to be, learn to be healthy with our inner voice. That's John's goal, or at least what we're trying to pull out of this text, knowing that there's more that we kind of left behind. We have to discern who's fueling the voice inside at the moment, and then act accordingly, submitting to the Spirit, rejecting our own voice if it's pressing condemnation over us, and rejecting the world because it's not our gauge of how to live anymore. It's only when we learn through the help of the Holy Spirit to navigate that inner voice that we'll learn to walk more fully and freely in Jesus. And those other voices of condemnation won't have chains over you anymore because they will not tear you down. Guys, again, there's always going to be voices inside your head. 
Is it socially acceptable to talk about that? Because we all know it, we just don't say it. There's always going to be voices speaking. Ask the Holy Spirit just for help. Will you help me understand? Help me understand what, what to receive and what to reject, what to, what to push away and what to lean into. Help me learn. A great tool for this was just prayer. Honestly, even in the time today, pray, God, would you help me understand how to navigate that better? And I, don't, I don't know that I do a good job. I, I think I actually have been pushing away conviction and receiving condemnation. Would, would you help me straighten out these voices and, and, and live in the way that, that I should? Would you help me? And, and then here's a really practical tool through prayer and asking the Holy Spirit for help. You can get help. But, but here's another good thing, community. Why are we pressing into DNA groups? Why are we pressing into getting together? Because then you can say, hey, brother, you know me well, and I don't know if this is conviction or condemnation. Do you see the fruit of this in my life? Do, do, you, do you see this? Do I, do I need to submit to this? Do I need to turn to this? Do I, do I need to fight and reject that? Would you, would you help me see myself? Because I don't know if this is a blind spot that I'm kind of feeling inside or not. This is why we are there. To walk in line with the gospel, with each other, it shouldn't be only at seldom times where believers around us hear what's going on in our hearts. It should be normative. This is what God is doing. This is what he's stirring. This is what he is moving. Would you help me navigate this? Will you help me? This is what it looks like to walk out your faith with other people. So in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to help amongst community is a really great way to get some help with that inner voice. I hope that, that what we take away from this text as well is that Jesus died to be the authoritative voice over you. There's many voices that'll speak. There's one that really gets to speak, though. His words get to land. He came and died, right? We celebrated this over Easter. Because of his coming and his death and his resurrection, he has the authority, and what he says over you counts. Believe in his death and his resurrection. What he has accomplished in his finished work, learn to accept the Spirit when it speaks and press away condemnation by saying, that's not my name. I've been given a new name when it speaks terrible things over you. How healthy would we be if we just learned to do that well? And I pray for that for us. We would navigate well, not lash out at the people around us because we don't know how to deal with condemnation, but that we would mold when we've just kind of done wrong. And then we'd push off the things that are speaking false words over us. That's the hope. Garrett, would you come up? We'll, we'll take communion in, in our last three songs that are coming up for today. You're, you're free to, to grab uh, back there a communion cup and, and take. You don't have to be a member to take. Uh, so we'd love if your faith is in Jesus for you to, to participate in that. But uh, at any time during worship, we would ask, hey man, if, if you're struggling with this, pray a little bit first and then in worship take communion knowing that uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says this, for I receive from the Lord what I, what I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the really beautiful thing that we get to remember. When you take the elements and you take, you wash away condemnation. 
Why? Because the full cup of God's wrath has been paid for by Jesus. The word says, there is now therefore no condemnation. So if that inner voice has been speaking these things over your identity that are not lined up with what the word says, as you take, your body was broken for me and your blood was spilled for me so that those words are not true anymore. Here's the scary news. If there was no sacrifice, those words might actually be quite true about you. But you can take knowing that they're not, that Jesus has given you a new name. That's the reason that we believe that there's a living hope at the table. We're preaching to ourselves, you have paid it all for me. And I hope that that's formative for you as we worship today. Would you stand with me? God, I thank you for today. We pray that you would help us. We need you, uh, Lord, to just straighten out the voices in our mind, what's happening, what's going on in us, Lord. Uh, Help us to be healthy, Lord. Help us to navigate an inner dialogue in a different way so that we can hear you speak, that we will receive what you speak over us, and we will reject the things that are not from you. Help us, God. Spirit, if, if we have not heard you speak in some time, we ask that you would draw near. We need you. We need your work in our lives. We need to hear you speak over us. We need your conviction. We need your direction. And we also need you to fight for us to know when we should reject the things around us, trying to speak a word over who we are. Let our identity be fully formed in you, God. We pray for that in your name, for your glory. May we be a people who know who they are and they walk not pridefully, but just secure. You have spoken an authoritative final word over us. We pray that we hear that afresh while we're worshiping, and that we hear that just in a fresh way as we take the cup and the bread at the table. Be gracious. Holy Spirit, continue to work to us. We love you, God. Amen.